time. She has been an invaluable sounding board, an honest voice, an excellent editor, and the finest of friends. At the Wall Street Journal, I could not have done this project without the support of Steve Yoder, Dan Hertzberg, Gordon Krovitz, Paul Steiger, and many others. Of everyone at that august newspaper, though, Walt Mossberg has been my mentor and friend in so many important ways. Leslie Walker and Laura Blumenfeld of the Washington Post have also been valued colleagues and friends. Thanks to all at AOL Time Warner and throughout the online and media sectors who agreed to talk to me for this book. I extend particular appreciation to those who spoke on the record, since doing so was so uncommon in this complex story. For those who wanted to remain nameless, I thank you for the information, but I still wish you'd gone on the record. I also would be remiss if I did not thank those at AOL Time Warner whom I bugged for an entire year with annoying fact-checking queries and endless requests for interviews and information, especially John Buckley, Kathy Bushkin, Trish Primrose, and Ed Adler. I promise you all, I will never again write a book on AOL. Well, unless something even more newsworthy happens in the future. And this book would never have occurred without the help of my agent, Flip Brophy, my AOL.com editor, John Carp, and Crown publisher, Steve Ross. Finally, and especially, I extend the warmest thanks to my editor, Anique Lafarge. There is no such thing as a great reporter without a spectacular editor, so any credit I get for this book goes to her, too. Any criticism, of course, is all mine. Kara Swisher I'd like to thank Kara Swisher, who gave me my start in books by hiring me to help her with AOL.com in early 1997. Thanks also to my many clients since then. You know who you are, and I appreciate your entrusting your books to me. To Barbara Feynman, Deborah Grosvenor, and Laura Einstein, thank you for your advice and help over the years. To my parents, my brother David, and my uncle Pitt, you can't pick your family, but if you could, I'd certainly have picked you all. Finally, to Char Taylor. Thank you for all the help, loyalty, and love you've given me over the past five years. Your support has meant everything to me. Lisa Dickey We're all at a wonderful party, and by the rules of the game, we know that at some point, the black horsemen will burst through the great terrace doors to cut down the revelers. Those who leave early may be saved, but the music and wines are so seductive that we do not want to leave. But we do ask, what time is it? What time is it? Only none of the clocks have any hands. Adam Smith, The Money Game Prologue What is the sound of one door slamming? When the door slammed in my face from 3,000 miles away, I knew Steve Case had actually managed to pull off the heist of the very new century. Luckily for me, it wasn't a heavy wooden door, but a virtual one. Many virtual ones, in fact, being banged shut by different high-level executives at America Online Incorporated, almost immediately after I pinged them electronically. I'd done so because an unusual number of them were logged onto the online service in the wee hours of Monday, January 10th, 2000. How did I know this? The digital footprints were unmistakable. Right there on my buddy list, an electronic who's where on AOL that allows you to keep track of anyone on the service. Once you see that someone's online, you can send an email or, more immediately, an instant message, or IM, as it's come to be known, that pops up directly on the recipient's screen. 
As a helpful feature, when someone on your list logs in, there's a sound of a door opening. And when he or she leaves, there is naturally the sound of a slamming door. It's all very silly and very AOL, mostly used by teens, one tool of an elaborate digital social scene that had made the service incredibly popular with them in a few short years. IMing had also become widely employed by its legions of users who like to participate in a bit of racy online sex chat every now and then, yet another massive and loyal audience AOL had used to transform itself into a Wall Street wunderkind. But I assumed it was not for some electronic after-hours party that a bulk of AOL's management hierarchy had gathered in the digital ether in the dead of night. I wasn't AOL exec fishing just for fun. I'd signed on immediately after getting a call near midnight at my house in San Francisco from a fellow reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Peter Gumbel of the Los Angeles Bureau had just gotten a killer tip when a stunned source had called him late at night and told him that the giant entertainment behemoth Time Warner was merging with AOL. This was an unbelievable piece of news, both for the massive financial numbers it would surely involve and the enormous reverberations it would have throughout the media and Internet world. More important, Peter's source had told him that AOL, and not Time Warner, was going to hold the majority stake in the new company. This would be the clearest signal that the online upstarts, which had burst on the scene in the late 1990s and whose market valuations had climbed to incredible heights, had reached the apogee of power and influence. Even in the midst of what turned out to be the Internet's frothiest moment, this was still a jaw-dropping idea. Time Warner was one of the world's most important media companies, with such wide-ranging and iconic properties as People Magazine, Bugs Bunny, and CNN. Despite its hot stock, AOL had only a single dial-up online access business. As I would later write, a company without assets was buying a company without a clue. Nonetheless, it was exactly this kind of transformational deal that had been a long-held dream of AOL's chairman and chief executive, Steve Case. He had, in fact, told me as much when I had first met him in 1995 as a technology reporter for the Washington Post. In a drab office in a nondescript building behind a car dealership in Vienna, Virginia, the peculiarly calm and unusually baby-faced Case declared that his near-term goal was to be one of the biggest and most powerful media and communications companies in the world, and very, very soon. My first thought, since he did not appear to be an egomaniac like so many executives I had interviewed, was that he might actually be insane. At the time, though, I only nodded politely and, as he chattered on, began to calculate how soon his perpetually rickety company would declare bankruptcy. At the time, most people thought that would be the ultimate fate of AOL, given its precarious financial state for much of its volatile history. Still, I soon learned that Case had been spinning his impossible scenario to many visitors, which was why most reporters who covered AOL considered him a bit of a crank. Besides predicting the inevitability of world domination by his tiny business, he also never seemed to let up on endless pie-in-the-sky speeches, mixing in references to convergence and interactive and all sorts of other computing hoo-ha and linking it with the future of all mass media. 
from a cruddy little office far from any canyons of power and influence, the seemingly out-of-his-league business boy had decided he was going to be the king of the world. He might excuse anyone for being skeptical. In fact, the company had found itself at the edge of disaster so frequently that one of its first executives, a brassy Vietnam veteran and restaurateur named Jim Kimsey, had taken the punchline of an old joke popularized by Ronald Reagan and made it into an unlikely mantra for AOL. It concerned a very optimistic young boy who happened upon a huge pile of horse manure and began digging excitedly. When someone asked him what he was doing covered in muck, the foolish boy answered brightly, There must be a pony in here somewhere. Kimsey's version was a bit earthier. Come on, there must be a pony somewhere in this shit. He had crowed when times got particularly tough in 1984 to egg on his dispirited corporate troops. They were justifiably dubious, given that the online services offered by the company weren't selling, it had burned through most of its cash, and creditors were poised to snap up what little was left. Such crises would become a familiar refrain for AOL over the years, a history that was punctuated by a lot of shoveling of a lot of manure. But had AOL finally found the pony? If one of these Internet high flyers was actually able to buy what was considered the finest traditional media company on the planet, this was an incredible scoop. So Gumble had called reporters in various cities at the paper to get a critical second and third confirmation that such major stories required. I had tried making calls to AOL people I knew at first, but no one answered. This was not surprising since most of my relationships with the company took place online. So I dialed into the AOL service to see if I could email someone. I quickly began to type in the online monikers of any executives I knew from my years of covering the company and from later writing a book, AOL.com, about its turbulent history. Thankfully, unlike other big company executives and their legions of public relations obstacle creators, Many online business leaders loved kibitzing back and forth with reporters via email, in what I can only guess were efforts to charm us into loving them for their accessibility. Frankly, it worked a lot of the time, so they freely handed out their email addresses and were always very easy to locate instantly. It was true that night, too. It soon became clear that pretty much everyone in any position of power at AOL was signed on to the service. We know, I wrote in a flurry of initial instant messages, attempting to be as vague as possible. Tell all. I hoped this would produce a response of some kind from someone, especially since instant messages were hard to trace and had always been an easy way to make first contact with company sources. Instead, I got a very unusual reaction. Slam, 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 slam. The people I had IM'd were signing off the service as soon as the little message bombs I sent had exploded onto their screens. Moreover, many started to actually block my messages, which can also be done to those on your buddy list you want to avoid. The technique was usually used by those who needed a tool to deflect creepy online chatters, which I now seem to have become to the top rank of AOL executives. But since several of my missives had gotten through before being declined, their belated door-slamming seemed like the online equivalent of some poor sap running away from pursuing TV cameras. 
I couldn't imagine they could be quite this dumb, but the online name skittered off my buddy list as fast as I could hit the return key to send more messages. It appeared as if I had them digitally nailed. But I didn't really. Their skittishness only proved that they were up to something, which might not involve a multi-billion dollar deal. They could be putting the finishing touches on some hyped-up advertising shakedown that was derogueur for AOL in the boom years, as they plucked all the low-hanging venture capital investments from newbie web startups, dying to go public and needing to punch their AOL deal ticket to get there. Or perhaps AOL was rearranging its management structure, which the company did regularly over the years, shifting from one chameleon color to another in order to please investors. They could even be acquiring some lesser company like eBay, a deal that had been rumored for a while in an effort to keep up their fast-paced growth that was always at risk of faltering and bringing down the whole breathless show. Lord help us, Steve Case may have decided to run for president for all I knew. Dumble called back, wanting to know if I'd gotten a confirmation. Um, no, not yet, I replied. But, I ventured, they're all online, slamming doors on me right and left and even blocking my electronic missives. Barred virtual entrances? Bounced emails? Gumble was justifiably frustrated, since this was not what one of the finest business newspapers in the world could rely on to confirm such a major story. Imagine explaining this to the top editors at the New York headquarters. Well, we couldn't get a second source, but there was that curious rash of online door slamming and email blockage. New economy companies might be able to suspend the basic rules of their business, but new economy reporters could not. For a story this big, as the Washington Post's Ben Bradley used to say, I hadn't got it. Thank goodness for better and faster reporters than I. Our media reporter, Martin Pierce in New York, had reached someone from Time Warner by phone. Not given to lurking online at all hours, the source had confirmed to him that the deal was indeed happening and added more details. And with that, a 228-word story on the stock-for-stock -stock merger was then raced onto the Wall Street Journal's website and the Dow Jones newswires, since it was too late to actually print the news in the flagship Wall Street Journal. This was a little ironic. Just the Friday before, Pierce himself had asked Time Warner spokesman Ed Adler if such a deal was even a possibility, after a Los Angeles Times year-end retrospective had included a widespread Wall Street rumor that AOL had recently tried to make a hostile bid for his company. Adler actually had no idea what his boss, Time Warner CEO, Gerald Levin, was up to, even though the deal had nearly been struck. Naturally, he had dismissed the notion as bogus to peers. I had, too, even though it was completely possible because of AOL's judgment.